Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Faith in Politics. We've got a very uh, exciting and largely Brexit-free episode coming up this month. We're going to be talking about housing and universal credit and Venezuela. We've got a monthly musing from Jasmine Yeboah, who is our Methodist Youth President. And then we've got an interview with Labour MP Kat Smith. Beth, and I know that you've been following the story in Venezuela and, and all of the unrest there very closely. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what's been going on. So the situation in Venezuela is incredibly complicated at the moment, but the two main things to remember are firstly the massive socio-economic crisis that's been gripping the country since 2010, which means that basic goods and services have gone uh, vastly out of the price range of normal um, Venezuelan citizens. Um, This has resulted in over three million people leaving Venezuela in the search of a better life and that's why it's been in the news um, in America a lot because of the caravan moving up through South America trying to cross the border. Um, This has become all the more complicated after a recent election in Venezuela where um, President Nicolas Maduro was elected for a second six-year term back in May 2018. However, The issues arise because he won millions more votes than his closest challenger and there were a number of concerns about vote rigging and worries that he has won the election via fraud. As a result of this, the opposition leader Guaido has declared himself the interim president and this all happened um, in January of 2019. And, And Bethan, how have the international community and more specifically the UK government been responding to the crisis? So there's been a lot of pressure from various international voices about which side you back. Maduro is claimed by some to be a dictator. The Canadian government have put out some very stern messages about their opinion of Maduro. Overall, the international community has come out in support of Guaido, um, acting as the interim president. However, back in late January 2019, um, the UK, France, Germany and Spain all demanded that Maduro cause an election. Um, This has not happened yet and it's not sure whether it will happen, um, but Guaido has promised that another election will be held and that he is in fact only acting as the interim president. And in some sense, this is playing out on a party political level in the UK too, isn't it? Yeah. So last week, there's been some pressure from the government to push the opposition, the um, Labour Party, to also come out in support of Guido as the valid interim president. Um, as of today, we that statement has not been made, um, but the UK government is um, has called for new elections within Venezuela and is, um, I believe, with the rest of the international community, supporting Guaido as the interim president but not suggesting that he should continue as the valid president for any extended period of time. And Bethan, what are the implications for people on the ground? We've talked a bit about the broader political implications, but what are the what are the consequences for people's lives in Venezuela right now? So all eyes are on the military, really, because the um, stability of the country remains in the military's hands at the present, unfortunately. If the military remains loyal to Maduro, then protests could lead to increasingly bloody crackdowns from the Maduro government. However, if they follow Guaido, then, the, then Maduro's days are possibly numbered in regards to his capacity to be president and whether they'll um, push him out of the country. But the most worrying thing is if the military become divided, um, half supporting Maduro, half supporting Guaido, and then this could result in a very severe civil war um, because the people themselves are also divided. There are people who support Maduro and there are people who support Guaido and it's just an incredibly complex situation. All this compounded by the fact that this massive socio-economic situation 
um, in regards to the hyperinflations of goods and services has happened during the Maduro government. So a lot of people feel that he's let them down. Maduro's policies are based on um, socialist, socialist ideology, and yet the people in his country can't survive at present, really. Many of them are starving, there's no access to gas or electricity for the majority of working class people. So to sum up, um, it will be really fascinating to see how the Venezuelan government responds to this, um, especially the international pressure. As I said earlier, the international reaction has been incredibly varied, um, with a number of South American countries claiming that Guaido is the valid interim president. Canada has claimed that Maduro's government is a dictatorship. The EU is looking for a process of free and credible elections in Venezuela. America has warned the government that all options are on the table, and that's a direct quote from Trump. And to cap all this off, Russia has accused the West of vast interference in the Venezuelan government. The situation is all more complex because of all the people leaving Venezuela. Over three million have left thus far, and this is all because of the result of lack of food and lack of goods and services. It's really important to remember that this one country's internal politics is actually affecting the whole of the South American continent and possibly um, the North American continent as the caravan of people moves up. Um, so it's just it's an incredibly complicated situation, but something that I do believe will become more and more relevant in the news and something to look out for in the coming weeks and months. Very important to remember the people on the ground in Venezuela who are really affected by uh, the political instability there. And, and it's important we've been thinking a little bit about universal credit in the last few weeks and really important with an issue like that to think about the impact that it's having on people. The Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, Amber Rudd, made a pretty extraordinary admission the other day saying that the, the delay, the, the, the delayed payments of universal credit was one of the causes of, of a rise in food banks. And, and that was quite surprising to hear, wasn't it, Bethan? Yeah, indeed. It's very surprising that the government spokesman of this policy is willing to admit its flaws in public. Um, incredibly promising. Um, in a way, to see that she's willing to, to say that something's wrong and that it needs fixing, but also rather unsatisfying as well in regards to the willingness to change things. Well, it's unsatisfying as well, because this is something that we've all known for a very long time. I mean, mm-hmm. the Trussell Trust has um, produced figures that show that when universal credit is rolled out in an area, food bank usage goes up by 52% compared mm. with areas where it uh, hasn't been rolled out and, and food bank usage has, has only gone up by 13%. Only gone up by 13% is a pretty damning... Um, uh, it is not a great state of affairs to be in either, but I think that the government is is willing to to say this and and is willing to uh, is willing to accept that there is something fundamentally wrong with the design of universal credit. One of the big problems that we've had with universal credit here at JPIT is the fact that by lumping six benefits into one, in a sense, you're simplifying a system that is inherently very complicated. Benefits, the benefits system is is a complex one because people's lives are complex. And, and one of the concerns with universal credit is that it just doesn't reflect the complexity of people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. And another issue is that this system um, is designed to cater for the most vulnerable in society. Often people in the benefit system are incredibly vulnerable or have incredibly complex social backgrounds and social issues. And for this system to be so inflexible means that the, it's catering for the most vulnerable, but it's not taking into, as you said, it's not taking into account the complexity of their lives. And um, because it's all mechanicalised and all done on um, by computers and there's very little human interaction with the system, it means that um, uh, everyday changes to your situation, everyday human, situ- human things that happen aren't considered, and it means that people's payments are so fluctuative from month to month, mm. and this means that people have very little stability. Mm.
In January, the government postponed its plan to move 3 million current benefit claimants onto universal credit, but but new claimants of benefits will be moved onto universal credit straight away. And that, that's estimated to be around 1.5 million people in, over the course of 2019. So there are problems with universal credit, and it's good that they're being uh, recognised. But Ultimately, the the plan is still for universal credit to be rolled out in full by 2023. There's a danger that by pausing, waiting for some of the public pressure to die down, that we'll simply see this system rolled out as it has been intended, not working well enough to serve the needs of people who need these, uh, who need this money the most. The five-week wait for um, universal credit payments is is a concern. It would be a concern anyway, even if these payments were coming on time. We were talking earlier about payments often being delayed, and that's a big problem when all of these uh, six existing benefits are, are rolled into one. It's really important that they uh, arrive in your account on time. Um, what's extraordinary about first payment uh, waits is that it takes five weeks. It, there's a month-long assessment period while, while your claim is being considered, and then there's another week to process the payment. And the idea that people can afford to wait five weeks to receive money that they need is, is just not realistic, that uh, food bank usage is going up substantially because people simply can't afford food while they're waiting for, their, for, their, for the money that they're entitled to to arrive. And one of the really ironic things about universal credit is that it was a system designed to increase personal responsibility of money. However, personal responsibility of money is almost impossible when you don't have any money to spend and don't have any money to um, look after yourself and your family, which is as a direct consequence of this five-week waiting limit. Additionally, as we already spoke about, it's the most vulnerable people in society who are accessing this system and unfortunately many of them don't have the capacity to be financially autonomous and financially flexible with their money and that's one of the real downfalls of the system and unfortunately we'll simply have to wait and see as to the direct societal um, repercussions of this and just how much it does affect our access to food banks and also the rate of homelessness. If universal credit um, is rolled out in full we're likely to see somewhere between six and seven million families accessing it and so it really needs to work it's and and if it doesn't work there is going to be there are going to be huge implications um, for our society one of the things that you just said Bethan that's particularly striking is about the the change in behavior that universal credit is designed to bring about it's designed to encourage people to embrace personal responsibility to, to become more um, to become more adept at managing their own finances and and, and and indeed one of the major concerns particularly around housing is that the government is unwilling to make benefit payments direct to landlords, but landlords at the moment are very often unwilling to rent their properties to tenants who receive housing benefit because they figure that it might not arrive on time. And the justification for that is that the government wants universal credit claimants to have experience of managing their own money and their own resources. But if they're being penalised for being in receipt of universal credit or, or housing benefit, then they can't even live in a place that they can afford to. One of the good things about the previous system was that, as you said, the money for rent goes directly into the landlord's pocket from the government. So landlords feel they have a stable income, they have a stable rent system, and it's quite a positive thing. There is stability for both the tenant and the landlord. Um, And this is something that, as we said, we'll just have to sort of wait and see and see what happens Mm. in regards to how this is going to affect um, the rates of social housing and also the rates of how many people end up on the streets. So to end this month's news on a positive note, um, 
There was a recent news story about Pret-a-Manger's charitable foundation um, investing £200,000 a year in a homelessness hostel in London. Um, this scheme is as a direct response of a church and business partnership. So, Will, can you tell us a little bit more? The Pret Charitable Foundation has teamed up with West London Mission, a, a homelessness uh, charity affiliated with the Methodist Church in London. And it's a really good story and it's an example of how churches can partner with businesses to, to make a difference. Um, we were thinking a little bit about the partnership that took place between West London Mission and, and Pret-a-Manger and how there are these two quite different organisations. One is a is a homelessness charity and the other is a is a sandwich and, and coffee shop and they are uh, different in their origins and, and different in their ultimate uh, aims and goals but they both have a desire to see people's lives transformed and it's great to see that churches are working with businesses and that, that businesses are working with churches to, to make a real difference in their communities. We were thinking at my church on Sunday about the unlikely partnerships that God calls us into and we were thinking about that in the context of Luke chapter 5 when Jesus calls the first disciples to come and follow him and he goes to Simon Peter on his fishing boat and, and tells him to, to put down the net for a catch of fish and and Peter is is um, sceptical he's been out all night with his with his fellow fishermen and, and, and hasn't had any luck catching fish uh, but he says to Jesus because you say so I will and there's something very significant in that willingness to to follow Jesus and to do what he says and and as Christians we're not called to perfection but we are called to obedience and because God calls us to engage in the world around us we do it and so I think this partnership between the West London Mission and Pret is just a really good example uh, for us as Christians of the kind of partnerships we should be entering into. So up next we have a monthly musing from Jasmine Yabawa, the youth president of the Methodist Church for this year. Jasmine's theme has been that of courageousness and encouraging young people in the church to live boldly for God no matter what. And she's going to share this message with us now. Hello everyone, it's Jasmine, the Methodist um, Youth President for um, this year. Um, and I just want to encourage everyone. My theme for this year is courageous. And I want to encourage everyone, whether you're old or young, to be courageous about what God has put in your heart. I know sometimes it's just, it's easy to give in, cave in and quit. And it's easy to look at ourselves and to say, I am definitely not qualified. Like when we look at the story of Moses, Moses gave every excuse why he could not leave um, the people of Israel out into the wilderness. He was like, I am not qualified. Lord, I can't even speak. What you're giving me is something to speak. I I, um, I can't do this, Lord. And sometimes we disqualify ourselves even before we try to do something. So I'm encouraging you to be courageous, to be bold and do that thing which God has placed in your heart. I wish I could tell you that being the youth president, I thought I was qualified. And, and yes, when God put it on my heart to do it, I was like, yes, Lord. I had my doubts and I had my fears, but God showed me that it's him that's working through us. And as Christians, it is God that is working through us. It is him that is making all things possible. It is God that is fighting through us. And when you just avail yourself for God to use you, he'll be able to touch so many other lives. And it will be a testimony to you that God is using you because you knew by your strength, you couldn't do it. You 
you might be young and listening to this and you might think, I don't even have the experience. Well, I'm telling you something. You have a heart and God can use your heart to touch other people's heart. And he can give you the experience as you go on, but you need to have that mindset to say, I can do this. I love the Bible scripture, which says that um, he will keep you in perfect peace if your mind is stayed on him. And sometimes the battle is in the mind. Just keep it fixed on God and he will give you that peace you need to be courageous enough to step out. And I'm not saying when you take that decision and say, yes, I'm going to do it. Everything is going to be perfect. I am not going to lie to you. Sometimes it gets hard and sometimes you feel like giving up. But remember to keep your mind fixed on the prize, on the people that you're fighting for justice for, on the people you want to help, on the dream and visions that you have and the reason why you had it in the first place. Like it's easy to give up, cave in and quit. That's easy. But it's another thing and it takes real inner strength to continue and to persevere. And that is what I want you guys to do. I want everybody who's listening to this to be courageous. Yes, everybody has their weaknesses, but God says in your weakness, he is strong. And I'm telling you something, if you do that and put that in your heart and just focus on Christ and love, like radically love, like out love everyone around you, you're going to see your dreams coming true and you're going to impact the world with with Christ. You're going to be able to share the gospel, impact the world with Christ and impact the world with love, which is God. I pray this was a blessing and remember, be courageous for Christ and change the world. In this month's interview, Bethan sat down with Kat Smith. Uh, Kat has been the Member of Parliament for Lancaster and Fleetwood since 2015, and she was one of the 36 Labour MPs to nominate the rank outsider Jeremy Corbyn for the Labour leadership election in that same year. She's been in the Shadow Cabinet with the Voter Engagement and Youth Employment Brief, and she and Bethan had a really interesting conversation a little while ago. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, let's just start with the question of what's the importance of faith in your life and what's the story of your faith? Um, I suppose I'm quite straightforward and lucky in the sense that I was actually raised in a family that had faith. So I was, um, I was brought up in the Methodist church, um, going to Sunday school with my mum and my sisters on a Sunday morning. Um, so I never particularly had to, to find faith. I was sort of presented it really in a family setting so so my mum is uh, a Methodist my father is is Anglican by background but tends to come along to the Methodist church uh, with my mum now I suppose that's probably a practicalities thing as much as anything um, so I've always been sort of surrounded by people of faith so for me my journey into faith was an easy one um, and not not to say that there's not been moments in my life I've not questioned it and had crises of faith but generally speaking I've always felt very um, at ease and, and comforted by being you know in church and being surrounded by that support yeah and how does your your faith and your politics influence each other and what's that relationship like um, so so it's just my first political action well, it was sort of happened at the same time. So there was one where I was campaigning for girls in my school to wear trousers because we had to wear skirts. Now, that was probably quite a political action. That wasn't particularly influenced by um, <laughs> attending the local church. But um, the other around the same time was campaigning for fair trade. So at that time, the Methodist church was doing a big push on fair trade. Mm -hmm. And we were in the youth fellowship quite sort of 
into that and um, certainly dressing up as bananas and handing out leaflets about fair trade in the local shopping streets was probably my first mm -hmm. sort of exploration into politics um, although you know not necessarily party politics that came much later but that sense of social justice that sense of you know I am called to you know take part in the world around me to try and make it um, a better place a fairer mm -hmm. place uh, yeah, so I suppose really it was through um, Youth Fellowship Group at the Methodist Church on Hartington Street in Barrow and Furness that Cat Smith first did something political. Um, yeah, obviously, party politics came along much, much later after that. Mm -hmm. and I was at university by the time I thought about joining a political party. Um, and that was far less, I think, influenced by faith. I think by that point, I'd already established myself as quite a political person. So I moved from the fair trade onto other issues around mm -hmm. environmentalism and climate change, um, and then I found feminism. Uh, although that was mostly through the textbook of my A-level sociology course. Yeah. Um, so all all along that journey, I suppose I'd sort of found injustices and things that you know weren't fair. Um, also, having siblings helps you find out what's not fair. Uh, I found. That I had to. I felt an, a calling to sort of make change in the world around me. Mm -hmm. um, it's really hard to distinguish what was triggered by my faith and what was just triggered by being brought up in mm -hmm. a surrounding where, whereby social justice played a massively important role. Mm -hmm. So, although I'd say my mum's probably the sort of parent that probably influenced my faith most, I'd say that my father is probably the one that influenced my politics most. Um, so my mum, the Methodist, and my dad being the trade unionist, um, and I later found out, when I joined the Labour Party and I told him I joined the Labour Party, he, his reply was, oh, I used to be a member of the Labour Party, and I had no idea um, that he had been, and he is now, again, a member of the Labour Party, <laughs> and I, I re-recruited him. So, yeah. so now that you're in working in the realm of politics and that's your career, um, how do you think that, how has that changed your opinion on what the role of churches is in politics and is there a role that churches should play uh, in politics? I'll, I'll take part of your, your assumption in the question that it's a career. I don't think being okay. an MP is a career. I think um, it's a bit of public service that I'm doing. Yeah. I don't envisage, a career is something that you presume you can do for many, many decades in politics and certainly as an elected representative you can never assume that. So I think it's an interesting that you asked it that way because yeah. I think it's dangerous if you assume that it is a career to be an MP, mm -hmm. and that's yeah. that's a, probably quite a political that's opinion. A big question. Yeah, um, yeah. Probably asks more questions. But to <laughs> answer your question more precisely about the role of church, I think churches should, and uh, certainly my church does uh, take a very active role in politics. Um, distinguishing it from party politics, of course. But I mean, let's face it: Jesus was not exactly shying away from politics. Um, and I think often that's not understood by many people how political the Bible is. The Bible's one of the most political books I've ever read. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think churches should, and many of them do, take a role in politics. Even the ones that probably think they don't do politics, you know, the fact that you are supporting the local food bank is a political action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. And uh, let's let's move on a little bit to a slightly different topic. 
So when your constituency concerns, your constituents' concerns are different from the party line, and when that that slight conflict comes about, how do you deal with that as an MP, and how do you sort of balance that? I'm only an MP because my constituents elected me, yeah. and for me, um, and I say this, you know, obviously, you know, as an MP, we have staff, and I always say to my staff, like, the constituents come first, the constituency comes first. Um, because without them, you're not an MP. Um, so you always have to prioritise the needs of your constituents above anything else. Um, so if it's a choice between, you know, it could be simple things like, you know, there's a Labour Party conference on and, you know, they'd really like to go along. But at the same time, there's a really important event in your constituency. That constituency event has to trump the party, for me, every time. And um, just to touch on the topic of Brexit, because we have to in this day and age, um, in the realm of a, a post-Brexit universe, and when, when it's when it's all sort of settled, if that ever happens... I can say you um, think it'll be over. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. But um, what role, what things do you think the Labour Party should focus on, and what topics do you think they should be focusing on, both now while Brexit's being negotiated and also when it's... I think the, the answer is probably the same to both parts of that question, which is about making society, the country and global politics work for the many, not the few. Mm -hmm. And I know it's probably used quite a lot as a strapline, but I think the deep politics that run through that um, should be our mantra for before and for after and for during, because unless the country that we build works for the many, we won't have done what we are set out to do as a political party. And that goes back to the absolute core founding principles of the Labour Party to be a party for the many and I think that for the many not the few is a really good way of explaining what perhaps might have you know once upon a time been described as being you know for the working class well people don't really identify with class but that's ultimately the same thing. Mm. And on that realm so your work at the moment one of your roles is the shadow minister for um, young people and um, voter engagement so what issues do you think are the most significant for young people at the moment? The, the young people's issues, I mean, it's quite easy, actually, because um, there's an organisation called Bite the Ballot, which, which polls young people yeah. annually. So you can really track what young people's concerns are. And the things that are coming out at the moment is concerns about violence um, and knife crime mm -hmm. and gangs. But also, um, consistently, we get things like the right to vote and, you know, the right for 16 and 17 year olds to be given a vote in elections. I think that that campaign for the right to vote is, is deeper than just being able to put a cross in a box. I think it's young people saying, do you know what, I, I have an opinion about the world I live in and I want to have my say in it in mm. the same way that everyone else does. And on that topic of, of voter engagement and young people engagement, not just in voting mm. but in politics as yeah. a whole, how do you think that the public and politicians can work to like increase young people's interest and engagement in politics? Ultimately, it always comes down to respect. Yeah. If you're a politician that has no respect for a young person because they are young, then that young person is going to have no respect for you and it may well you know, trigger a reaction whereby they think politics is not for them. Mm. Politics is for everyone. And there's a saying, you know, if you don't do politics, then politics does you. And for the sake of young people, we need to make sure that we are... In, you know, respecting their views, listening to their views, and actually just affording them more respect. Because I suspect there's an awful lot of young people, hopefully, listening to your podcast, um, who feel like their local politicians or even the national politicians they see aren't relevant to their lives. Yet the decisions we make in Parliament impact 
so much on everybody's lives, including young people. And I think it's wrong that the young people are being denied their say for so long. Yeah, and and going back to the the capacity of churches and the capacity of the Christian community to like engage people in general, do you think that that I just what you spoke on before and what you spoke about young people, the capacity for churches to to be involved in politics? Do you think there's like an opportunity for them to engage there? Because they have these amazing capacity to they're full of people and people and that's what makes up churches and that's also what makes up politics i'm just curious as to whether you see a, a connection i think your churches have a huge role to play in engaging people yeah. um in politics and i think it, it's a brave minister preacher priest whoever it is that's leading the church leader um it's brave in some ways to stand before your church and say you know what there's an election happening on thursday and as Christians, we should be taking part in this. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think that you should ever be telling people which party or candidate to vote for, of course mm-hmm. not. But there, I think there is an obligation on us as Christians to take part in the community and make decisions that would benefit the kind of people that Jesus would want to help and to join those dots, you know. It is that cliche, what would Jesus do? But I think Jesus would vote. And I'm not going to suppose to say which, you know, in the British modern context, well, you know, would he have voted Leave or Remain? I don't know. I'm not going there. But I think he would have voted. He would have taken part and made a decision that he would have felt would have benefited the um, least well off. And the people that, you know, are just not very fashionable to be seen with. I mean, Jesus did not hang out with people like MPs, like me. Jesus would not hang out with me. (laughs) There you go, I've given you the title for the podcast. (laughs) But, you know, as an establishment figure, as an MP, Jesus wouldn't be with me. Uh, You know, it would be the, you know, we're sat here in the House of Commons. Outside the House of Commons in Westminster Tube Station, there are people sleeping rough. Mm -hmm. And recently a man died right at the entrance um, to the House of Commons because he was sleeping rough. Now... That they're the kind of people that the Jesus that I know would be with, mm. not not in having you know posh cups of tea in the House of Commons. Yeah, not a chance. And um, you've spoke a lot about the need for focus on domestic issues during this this time of, of great change um, in regards to to Brexit. But um, those domestic issues, how do you think? Like, what's your in very general question? But what's your view on what we should be focusing on, and how do you think we should be going about that when everything is thinking of so all the questions are so big and all the topics are so big and how do we bring it back down to the to the local people and the communities and those issues um well as a politician the best way i always bring it back to reality is doing what i do every weekend um which I was doing on Saturday, which is knocking on doors of unsuspecting constituents and going, hi, I'm your MP, um, I'm just around in the area, is there anything you want to chat about, any concerns you've got? Um, and I think that always grounds you, because, uh, and I keep saying this, but I'm only an MP because my constituents elected me, mm. and to be a good MP, I need to have a continual conversation with them and not just go back every five years and ask for their vote. I think that's, well, it's rude for a start, but mm. it's also not very, it wouldn't make me a very good politician. Mm. So I've, you know, I've confused a le- um, my constituents on many occasions by going out and knocking on their doors like days, weeks after a general election and they've gone, but, but you've missed it, the election's happened. And I say, well, I'm not knocking on your door for your vote, I'm knocking on your door because I want to have a conversation. And if you keep doing that as a politician, it will keep you grounded in, you know, being a really good representative of your community. Mm. Wonderful. 
And um, just just one final question, really. Um, so, the work of an MP is incredibly nuanced, and also I think maybe a little bit some people are a little bit confused about the day to day work of what an MP does. I was just wondering if you think there's anything that would surprise our listeners as to like the everyday work of an MP, <laughs> and um, and what it actually is like. I yeah, guess. I mean, there's 650 MPs, and there are 650 different ways of being an MP. Mm-hmm. So, by no means is my experience typical. Yeah, uh, nor should it be. Um, so my day-to-day life, I suppose, is is kind of the minute really dominated by being a new mum uh, and trying to blend that into what is you know already a really busy job. So you know there are times where you know I'll be honest, like right now, it's um, most people would have left the office at this time, shall we say, when we're recording this. Mm. Um, and you know I I think about it too much. I get quite upset that my baby's not not with me because he's at home with my husband who is doing bedtime routine and yeah it makes me sad to miss bedtime but I know that I'm also you know a really good role model for my son that I'm setting him an example whereby you know public service is important mm. um, and trying to make the world a better place for him and his generation because he's six months old and he's going to grow up you know post Brexit I guess what does that look like what kind of country is that and I hope it's a country that is kind that supports the most vulnerable um, and that he can be proud of the decisions that I make here even though on a Monday like tonight we're going to be sitting till 10 o'clock yeah and I think that's something really something I've observed during my time here is how how long the days are and they start at such bizarre times like, <laughs> especially in the house of well where I'm in the house of lords starts at 2.30 and can finish at 10pm apparently and, so that you could do your other job beforehand so that yeah. you could like practice law and be like some high-flying barrister and like, exactly. come in do do your politics like afterwards um, but it's also very much um like for, for mothers and for people who have families it's a very interesting conversation to have about how much does that impact the ability to have a family and also be a, a public servant. And I just, I've heard a few people talking about it. I just yeah. wondered about your perspective. I would never say that you can't be a mum and an MP. Yeah, um, you've got to do it in a different way. Yeah. And I've got like, other mummy friends and we chat and sometimes they send me like pictures when they've all been to the park and they've had a lovely day and they get a picture of all my mummy friends with their little babies on the swings and you think, oh, I'm really sad that I'm not there. But I'm, you know, my son Eli gets all these other experiences yeah. that they don't get. So I guess everyone's upbringing is different. Eli's going to have quite an unusual upbringing, but I hope that it makes him a well-rounded individual. Mm. It'll probably make him like, really turned off politics, probably. <laughs> I hope not, but I, yeah, he'll probably want to be something else. In many ways, you know, people go, you know, they often ask, you know, do you want Eli to go into politics like you? And I, I have jokingly reply, um, I'm kind of hoping for better for him. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, like any parent, you just think you want your kids to be happy. Absolutely. So. Well, with that, thank you so much for your time. Um, no, it was really you. generous. We'll leave you to go home to your baby. So, Will, uh, listening back to that recording, did, do you have any thoughts about the conversation that me and Kat had? I do. I thought it was particularly interesting the way that Kat talked about how political Jesus was, that, mm. that Jesus is a political figure, that he's not a party political figure, but he is somebody who took an active interest in the world around him. And, and I thought Kat spoke very passionately and persuasively about how as Christians we're called to engage in what's going on around us and she talked didn't she about some of the campaigns she was involved with um, both around fair trade and around um, 
and around trousers for for the girls at her school. And mm. there's something in there about the um, sense of justice that we should have as Christians. That, in a sense, it might seem like fair trade goods is more of a is more of an issue that we should be focusing on as Christians than than trousers for for girls at school. But actually, we're as Christians interested in justice. And when we see something that's unfair. We should say so, and we should be um, willing to willing to take a stand. And so I was really uh, struck by that um, in what Kat said. How about you, Bethan? Yeah, very similarly. I was struck by how she didn't attempt to separate the politicalness of Jesus's actions and how he was actually, for his time, an incredibly p- political figure and quite radical in that regard. And how she believes that the, there's real courage in churches and church leaders coming out and, and talking about politics, um, not in a party political manner, but in a way that is talking about justice and about the um, the necessity for us to think politically. I just thought it was really interesting. And, um, and also how willing she is to talk about her faith in her job as an MP. And um, so, for example, in her maiden speech, she mentioned the fact that she's a Christian. I also thought it was really interesting how she doesn't view her work as an MP as a career and how she views it as um, service. And that's actually a very Christian idea to, to serve others. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Bethan, we're, as we think about closing for this uh, month's episode, we're going to talk about the books that we've been reading. And, and it sounds like you've been uh, reading some really interesting stuff this month. Yes, so this month I haven't been reading, I've been listening to another podcast. Um, uh, You listen to other podcasts, I do, they're radical, right? (laughs) I've been listening to a podcast called The Butterfly Effect by um, a journalist called John Ronson, who's written a lot of things about the impact of social media um, throughout his his career. And this podcast is uh, rather unique, and it's about the butterfly effect that was caused when um, free pornography became available on the internet and how this changed the lives of um, the people working in porn in um, California specifically. And John Ronson goes around and talks to the various people um, working in the industry about their experience of how their lives have changed since, since free pornography became available to everyone. Um, and it is just a really interesting and very non-judgmental um, look at the porn industry and um, about the very human nature of it and I would really recommend it to anyone who just sort of wants to think about something they may not have thought about before and about the um, the lives of these people that is so easy to objectify and in fact they're just just as normal as the rest of us um, so it's just really interesting um, he's done a number of podcasts on this subject um, so yeah, highly recommend it. Mm. How about you, Will? What have you been reading? Well, I've been I've been reading books. How old school of me! And I've I've read a few things that I've really enjoyed um, in the last few weeks. But I particularly enjoyed uh, a very British coup by Chris Mullin. Chris Mullin is is a former Labour MP, as many of you will know. He's a prolific diarist, and I, I particularly enjoyed reading his diaries of his uh, time as a Labour member of Parliament. Um, but this is a, a fiction novel about uh, politics in the 1980s and and a radical uh, left wing Labour leader takes power and it's all about how the establishment uh, tries as best as it can to prevent him from governing effectively and I I found it a really enjoyable read and I also wondered a little bit about the um, significance that it might one day have in the future in our politics. Mm. So with that we'll sign off as always thank you again for listening Um, if you have any questions or queries or topics that you'd like us to, to discuss please do let us know And uh, we hope you have a lovely month.